Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Welcome to Cyanide Part 3. Yes. Yes, this Ladies, is... gentlemen, and everyone in betwixt. <laughs> this is the third part this month, and we are going in chronological order. We started with Zyklon B and the Holocaust. We went to Jonestown. There was a microdose about uh, Chicago Tylenol murders. Available for, for patrons. Value patrons, we really appreciate you and our listeners on Apple, Spotify, Google, and YouTube. We appreciate you too. If you think about it, share with a friend. If you don't want to follow us over on Patreon, yeah. sharing with a friend would be just as big of a help to us. We love you. Yeah. Thank you. If you could give us a rate on Apple and Spotify, that would be cool too. Yeah. So we are going in chronological order. We do have an overall story that we're telling. There is a little bit of information that you learn with each and every episode. You don't have to listen to it in order, but if you're just picking up on this third episode, I would recommend that you go back to the first. It's up to you. Choose your own adventure. So, so where are we going for Cyanide Part Trace? So part three, we're talking about the Excedrin murders. And at some point in a previous episode... I think I attributed multiple instances of cyanide contamination solely to Tylenol, and that is incorrect. There were the Tylenol murders, and then there were the Excedrin murders. So, we are in 1986 with the Excedrin murders, and they are totally unrelated to the Tylenol murders, but they do play in to the story. So, okay, okay. I, yeah, I do recommend that if you can, you go over to Patreon, but if you can't, that's fine. You'll pick it up. Yeah. You can get the bonus episodes for just $2 a month extra. Yeah. So exactly. for less than a cup of coffee, you could support these two lowly podcast <laughs> hosts and help us get some more research books or and, and get extra episodes. Yeah, exactly. But so we're starting on June 11th, 1986. Sue Snow and her 15-year-old daughter Haley were both beginning their days just like they usually did. Both woke up early, around 6, to get ready. Sue was a vice president at a bank in Auburn, Washington, and Haley was apparently unlucky enough to still be in school in early June, which sucks. So <laughs> she hops in the shower while her mom washed her face in the ma master bedroom's bathroom. And like most people who live together, they both recognized the sounds of their morning routines. So when Haley heard that the water was still running in her mother's bathroom, once she'd finished her shower that was probably, you know, 10 minutes longer, so she went down the hall to check. What she found was Sue Snow lying on her back on the bathroom floor, and the water was nearly overflowing in her sink. Her eyes were open but unfocused, and her fingers bent backwards unnaturally. Haley knelt down next to her mother and checked her head and looked for a pulse, which she was able to feel, but it was weak. Sue gasped sharply for air, but didn't exhale, and that's when Haley completely panicked. Something's not right here. And she said that she thought about doing CPR, 
because she had learned CPR from the same health class where she'd learned to take a pulse. And she knew that if someone was breathing on their own that you shouldn't. So pretty well-informed girl that we have here. Mm-hmm. But she, she doesn't know what to do because she's 15 and she's like, well, I don't do CPR. I don't know what to do. Well, so, and she's only half breathing. So then it brings into quite like, does this count? Does all, it not? Like, Yeah, honestly, she's going through like more logical steps than maybe I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would just be like, fuck. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> So she calls a family friend who lives down the road. Her name is Karen. And Karen told Haley that she was going to come right over. But before she gets there, you need to just call 911. Hang up the phone and call 911. Haley's call to the Valley Com Emergency Dispatch came in at 6.43 a.m. Karen arrived shortly after and the fire department arrived at 6.47. They described Sue Snow as having agonal respiration with open, fixed, and dilated eyes. So basically what Haley also reported. They gave her a face mask they could squeeze the air through to help her breathe, but Snow was fading. Paramedics arrived within minutes and began attempting to resuscitate the 40-year-old, but nothing they were doing or giving her was helping her to improve. One of the paramedics described it by saying that, quote, she was neurologically intact, she was acting like a head injury, but she wasn't exhibiting any of the things that go along with that. She hadn't just slipped in the bathroom and fallen, something but else. And, and, and bumped her head, right. Yeah. All the people who were present, they began asking Haley if anything like this has ever happened before. You know, had Sue ever tried to kill herself? Did she have depression? And Haley was like, no, no, I have no idea what's happening. This is totally unexpected. So they asked if Sue Snow was on drugs. Haley denied that. And she said that all she knew was her mother didn't drink coffee, so she took an Excedrin every morning for a caffeine boost. The mm. paramedics checked the bottle of Excedrin, expecting it to only be partially full, which would, you know, either be unhelpful or indicate that Sue had taken an overdose. Like, it's kind of hard to tell in that situation. Sure. But the bottle of capsules was new and still full. Like, she'd taken maybe one. So, mm. yeah, suspicious. Sue had to be intubated right there on the bathroom floor. And Haley watched the emergency personnel load her mother onto a stretcher to be driven to a landing strip and then airlifted to Harborview Medical Center. Then the 15-year-old girl, in shock and uncertain of what to do, tried to pick up the pieces of her day. This would be me. She called the bank where Sue worked and told them her mom wouldn't be coming in. This is totally this is totally me in an emergency situation like, where you just break <laughs> down and you're like, well, mom's not going to work. I should call them. And it's just like your brain's shut off. <laughs> right. Like I'm only I'm doing the most logical thing I know how. Right. And that is calling in everybody. <laughs> Haley also had an older sister who was out with a guy somewhere. She She was that kind of like doing whatever she wants type of sister. So she couldn't really be contacted. And her mother's new husband was at work. So she called his work, but somebody else had to contact him. Haley's dad, Connie Snow, worked at Boeing. So she couldn't call into his office directly to let him know what had happened either. So sure. it's just like this 15-year-old girl and her neighbor, like she they're the only ones who know what happened to her mom. So... Of course, because she doesn't have anyone to give her direction. Her mom was just taken to the hospital. All she could do was gather her homework like she would normally do before school and then 
went with Karen to be driven to the hospital. Like, Haley mm-hmm. is me in this situation. Totally, totally mm-hmm. me. Like, I guess I should do my homework while my mom's, <laughs> I don't know. This makes sense, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Karen and Haley arrived to the hospital around 7.30, long after Sue had arrived, because she got flown in. And Sue was not doing well. They didn't have to wait long before they were met by a doctor who gave them the unfortunate news that Sue's brain was swollen. They said they were going to do some more tests and asked Haley if her father was coming. She said that she thought so, but she didn't, she had no idea. She didn't know. She didn't know, yeah. So all she could do was wait for the adults in her life to show up to the hospital, but nothing they could do could do would help either like it would just no, be no. like even support. if they were there right yeah. there's nothing it's not like it would make a difference sadly yeah and then minutes after he left the doctor came back and told Haley that her mother was brain dead so like completely brain dead or like in a coma brain dead brain dead like completely brain dead brain yeah dead. like oh. you can start harvesting organs and like getting mm. her affairs together when Sue's husband, Paul Webking, finally showed up to the hospital, he was, of course, far too late. Sue was being kept on life support, but doctors, you know, they were doing what they could, but they told Webking that she was basically dead. Like I said, you know, like, is she a donor? Is she a DNR? Like, what do we need right. to do here? No one could understand what had happened. Totally unexpected. Sue had been in perfect health, and her death came out of nowhere. What's more is that only Paul seemed to have any explanation for her death. He said possibly she had some sort of event caused by stress, which he claimed she took some sort of medication for. And like I said before, Haley had, she thought her mom didn't take anything. So everybody was like. So was he thinking that she overdosed on something? Or maybe it was just the stress. The stress made her pass out. The stress itself. Yeah. So we don't really know. And when people began to show up to help out with grief and funeral planning, they noted that Paul seemed almost unaffected by her death, which Mm. people grieve differently, but sure, it's always the husband, right? Yep. The morning of Sue's funeral, her identical twin sister, Sarah, went looking for something to take for a headache and found the bottle of Excedrin because the paramedics had noted it but hadn't confiscated it. Sarah stopped dead in her tracks when she saw that the Excedrin was in the form of capsules, not tablets, as she knew her sister, like her, had always preferred. And this Mm -hmm. was because of the Chicago Tylenol murders. Oh, she knew that she only liked tablets because they couldn't be tampered with like the capsules in the Tylenol murders. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. So immediately she told everyone in the house, like, everybody's gathered for a funeral, we're in black, the house is full of people, and she immediately freaks out. And she's like, these are probably what killed my sister. She said, I'm not joking, nobody take these capsules. Like, full freak out mode. Yeah. Sarah went so far as to insist that her husband go and buy tablets for the people in the house to use just so nobody would accidentally use these capsules. She asked Paul why in the hell Sue would have capsules, and he told her that Sue bought them on accident once and then found that she preferred them, so she continued to buy them. Hmm. And, yeah, yeah. So Sarah was hmm. like, mm, seems suspect. So 
I know I know that anybody who hasn't heard of the Chicago Tylenol murders or hasn't listened to that episode might just think that it's like a paranoid and a minor thing, but the Chicago Tylenol murders are unsolved to this day. And this is only a few years after that. That was in so like everybody's still on high alert. Yeah, completely high alert. And people would have already made that lifestyle change from capsules to tablets. And out of fear, they would not accidentally, you know, buy them, take them, and then stay, is at least what Sarah was thinking. And I, I could see people, right. other people thinking that. And so <laughs> she she found it very easy to question Paul's line of logic. And also, she thought it was easy to question him because Sue and Paul had only been married for eight months before she died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also highly, 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 highly suspicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the first clue that they actually got about what killed Sue Snow came with the first incision at her autopsy. Autopsy technician Janet Miller smelled what she recognized as the pungent scent of bitter almonds, which only about 20 to 50% of the population can even smell. But, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was <laughs> there was this guy on YouTube who was like, I'm going to see if that's true. And like... He's not somebody that I, like, follow on YouTube. It was just a random video that came up. And so he got a little bit of cyanide and, like, found what, like, the inhalational fatal dose would be and made sure that, like, he had a little container that was below that. He wasn't going to kill himself with it. But then he, like, smelled it and he was like, I can't smell anything. He didn't think to see if he could smell almonds beforehand. It was the dumbest He just went right to cyanide. Yes. Yes. That's funny. You have to be able to smell it first. Anyhow, (laughs) yeah, but so Miller had experienced it firsthand because she had been at another autopsy where it was suicide by cyanide ingestion, and I guess part part of the reason that they're not exactly sure how many people can smell it is because, like, morgues and autopsy suites can sometimes be very well ventilated, which would be great, you know, in a decomp situation, you want sure. highly ventilated places. Or sometimes they're not super ventilated because usually you're not, I don't know, usually you're not dealing with anything that, like, is in a hood necessarily. You're not dealing with anything right. that you're going to inhale and kill you. So they're just like, ah, deal with it. Ah, you suck. Right. It's, yeah, <laughs> occupational hazard. Yeah. So she knew she could smell it. She smelled it. And then she alerted the medical examiner. Curiously, despite the fact that Sue did not have the cherry red lividity of a cyanide death, which we've talked about, Mm -hmm. the medical examiner did make note of the smell and asked for it to be included on the toxicology report. So this must have been like a group that had just like a really good rapport, which I don't know. I I would say that there's some deaners who the medical examiners work well with and some that don't. It's just like any, any job situation. So it it's in this case very good that they like listen to each other and, the and they're talking exam- and the, the communication is good and everybody the right hand talks to the left hand everything's good to go right and she trusted that you know i think that it smells like bitter almonds you can't smell it but i'll write it down that sort of thing now they didn't think that they were actually going to find any cyanide which makes sense because cyanide is really very rarely used homicidally in the 20th century, which is why I think it's curious that they chose to listen to each other, talk it out, and write it down. Mm-hmm. They were more concerned that there was a flat iron plugged in near a running sink when Haley found her mother. They thought it was an electrocution. Death. Oh, right. okay. Right. 
But then on Monday, June 16th, police were phoned and informed that Sue's death was being investigated as a homicide because cyanide had been detected in the blood. And so what are the toxicology tests for cyanide like? So typically, I never actually had to do a cyanide test. It's not a typical analyte that shows up on a panel. So typically, it has to be a situation like this. Like, this just played out perfectly. Where it's suspected. It's suspected. So first, you would do a colorimetric test, which means that you have these strips that um, usually you have some sort of solution that you have a low amount of cyanide, you know, produces this color. A high amount of cyanide produces this color. And then your test, and you see where the test cyanide falls in between the two that you you know the values. So of. is it like tissue or something like that that you use to get the solution? Like tissue from the body? Yeah. You can use blood. Blood? You, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you can use the blood. So they would do a colorimetric test with that. And then if it's positive, you have to do a special test that is specifically for that on GCMS, so gas chromatography mass spectrometry, which is usually gotcha. what everything is done on, but it's not, cyanide is not on a typical GCMS panel. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So these tests are done, the cyanide is found, and like Sarah, police immediately suspect Paul. Well, it's, it's always, always the husband. It's always the husband. <laughs> it's always the husband. <laughs> As I already mentioned... Sue and Paul had only been married for eight months before she died, but they had been living together for five years before that. In oh, okay. In fact, before they'd even gotten married, on Thanksgiving Day in 1985, Sue had learned that Paul had an affair with a high school girlfriend, and they still somehow managed to work through that and then tie the knot. Now, well, that's a testament to the strength of it or or sue's or sue's decision making skills i don't know i don't want to i don't know the situation maybe he was the love of her life and she knew that and was willing to forgive that mistake right maybe or it could have also you know like now that she's dead it could also be like well did he have to knock her off for some reason to be with this other woman i don't know sue She did still harbor resentment towards Paul for this affair, and her sister Sarah knew that and encouraged her to leave him after the wedding. Mm -hmm. And even Sue's daughters knew that Sue and Paul had a hard time getting over the affair. So, like, they got over it. Everybody knew about it. Yeah. Yeah, and And everybody everybody knew knew it was an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Sue's oldest daughter admitted that she could see why Paul might have cheated on her mother, which is a little hard. (laughs) yeah harsh (laughs) she said because my mom loved paul so much he might have felt like he was controlled a little bit maybe there was just a little escape for him Mm. (laughs) yeah yeah paul was also not surprised to learn that sue had been poisoned with cyanide like he's things (laughs) things don't look good for paul (laughs) yeah And he wasn't surprised to learn that there was cyanide found in 10 of the capsules in Sue's bottle of Excedrin. So so somebody gave that to the police and then got it tested? Mm -hmm. I'm sure after they found it, that's when they confiscated the bottle. That's when the police got involved. Because before that, I mean, even at the autopsy, they were thinking it was accidental death by electrocution, right? Right. So, yeah, they they took the bottle, they examined it, and they, they found the cyanide. And 
despite the fact that the Tylenol poisonings were not ancient history, it's not something that most people felt Paul should have expected. It's kind of one yeah, of those I don't, things. Well, I don't know why anybody would expect it. Yeah, like, you might be cautious and take precautions and not buy capsules, but you don't expect it. <laughs> like, he Right, you don't expect it. Like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> obviously. Obviously, that's <laughs> obviously, what it was. It's, obviously, what? it's cyanide. Investigators saw his reaction. They saw that he expected this, and they were like, what? <laughs> You're yeah. suspicious as hell, dude. So don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Uh, yes. So the Auburn PD is moving in on Paul, who's the most likely suspect, and Excedrin had to be notified of the tampering because of the Chicago, Chicago Tylenol murders, and now there were laws in effect, you know, federal laws for consumer product tamperings, and so the FBI and the FDA now had to get involved. It was a huge fucking case now that they found tampering. Everyone was on edge, not sure if it was a murder, not sure if it was a copycat of the Chicago Tylenol, mm-hmm. Tylenol murders, because there were copycat incidences of that outside of this. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they everybody was just like, ah, what the fuck is happening? But, <laughs> you know, they couldn't they couldn't rule out that it was a copycat on like a grand scale. Like maybe it was somebody right. at Cedron who was doing it. Sure. So... Bristol-Myers, the manufacturer of Excedrin, decided all bottles of extra-strength Excedrin in homes and on the market had to be recalled and seized, especially any bottles from lot number 5H102. Investigators were also sent to the manufacturing plant in Morrisville, North Carolina, but no trace of cyanide was found there. Okay, so it's not at the grand scale that they were possibly worried about. Right, right. So that's that's good. Right. And like with the Tylenol murders, this actually, this recall and everything happened very quickly. The same day that Sue's blood was confirmed for cyanide, which is June 16th, was the same day that all of this went down and the investigation began and the recall was issued. By midday on June 17th, over 73,000 thousand bottles had been checked for cyanide via x-ray and a tainted bottle was found at a johnny's store in kent washington now i know we're in auburn is this near kent yeah it looked like what what did google maps say it looks like it's about a 14 minute drive oh, oh so okay. it's very very close by yeah okay. it's close so it looks like they're both suburbs of seattle or tacoma But yeah, they're close to each other. Okay. On June 17th, around 5.30 p.m., dispatch received a call from a woman just outside Auburn city limits who was absolutely inconsolable on the phone. She said that her husband had recently died, and she just realized that she had a bottle of extra-strength Excedrin from the recalled lot. Police were sent to her home and found that the woman had calmed down in the 45 minutes it took to reach her, and she was able to give them more information about her husband's demise. According to Stella Nickel, her 52-year-old husband, Bruce, had taken some Excedrin just before his death two weeks beforehand on June 5th and was taken to Harborview Hospital, the same place as Sue Snow, and he died. An autopsy had been performed on Bruce, but Stella had yet to receive a final cause of death in her husband's case. The preliminary findings suggested that he died of emphysema, which Stella said had not been a concern at her husband's last medical checkup. 
Well, and why would they be checking for cyanide? Right. Or something like that, you know, unless they had reason to believe it was, which they didn't. If they had that same diener or whoever it was, they could smell the cyanide, right? Right. So the Nichols bottle of Excedrin was seized and had only eight capsules left. Stella said that Bruce had been taking a lot of Excedrin almost every day before his death because of headaches, so she also had another bottle from the same lot she'd bought two weeks after she'd bought the first one. So the officer seized both bottles and then a few days later called the Harborview Hospital to ask about, you know, the final autopsy results for Bruce Nickel. Where are you guys on this? Because the wife says Mm -hmm. that you haven't confirmed anything. The doctors told the officer that Bruce's case had been closed with a final cause and manner of death two days after he died, and Stella Nickel knew that. The Mm. officer... Yeah, I know. (laughs) The officer Mm. then asked if Bruce's body had been tested for cyanide, and he learned that it hadn't because there'd been, again, like we said, no reason to suspect foul play in his death, nobody smelt it at the time, And it's not a regular thing that you test for on a tox panel. Right. Now, it was still possible to test Bruce's body because, you know, now the Excedrin tampering was known. So all of that can take place. So the officer tracked down a tube of Bruce's blood at the eye bank that could be used for that purpose. What's an eye bank? So when people die, it kind of depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. But um, especially if you're an organ donor, then people from the eye bank will come and they'll collect your corneas because apparently those are donated a lot. Like those are one of the first things that they collect is the cornea and they'll collect the vitreous humor for testing. So this is disgusting and I never actually watched it be performed because it was one of the few things that bothered me on a really visceral level. (laughs) They would collect the corneas and then they would take the vitreous humor out of the eye so they'd just suck the like fluid out of the eye oh, that was like okay. the first thing they did in autopsy so that they could like collect everything else and they probably sent blood off to the eye bank to test it for any diseases so that mm, any okay. any other organs that they might need would also be taken they would take skin grafts as well i think it it could be an eye bank and also other tissue donation or perhaps just the eye bank for the corneas oh, okay. um, and then sometimes at least where I worked, they would take blood and hold onto it for DNA testing. And I'm pretty sure that was indefinitely that they held onto the blood for DNA okay. testing. So okay. they would hold on to whatever other panel of blood that they took for the regular talk screening. And then they'd hold onto your blood in case they need it for DNA for your family tree for some reason or for Golden State Killer type stuff where they want to link gotcha. crime cases. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So anyhow, the eye bank had his blood, everything's great, they can test it for cyanide, and the Nichols bottles of Excedrin were tested, and it was revealed that both bottles contained cyanide-tainted capsules. Mm. So now we've found four bottles. We have Sue Snow's, the one at the Johnny's, and now two that Stella Nichols had. So it was almost certainly a tampering case. But Sue Snow's family couldn't get over the horrible irony of the fact that Sue never bought capsules she only bought tablets because she was afraid of contamination yeah that's the irony is is alanis morissette levels like it's it's too it's too ironic it's don't you think 
don't you think? I do think. I do think it's a pretty terrible irony. The FBI still suspected that something was off of Paul and came to do their own investigation, which, you know, they had to do, but they, they were very much focused on Paul. And part of their investigation involved searching his 18-wheeler truck. Paul said he had a bottle of Excedrin capsules that was clearly in view, and they didn't find it. So he's trying to, like, throw shade back on the FBI. He's like, you guys suck. You can't even investigate correctly. But he said after their visit, he destroyed the contents of this bottle by, oh my God. by pouring them in the garbage disposal so that no one else could be hurt. Since that bottle was also from the tainted lot. So he didn't, like, have it tested. He was just like, oh, just let me destroy this just so no one gets hurt. Just destroy this evidence. <laughs> Don't mind me. Okay. Sarah, she still is 100% believing Paul had killed her sister. This whole, you know, incident with the FBI certainly doesn't help. And now she's like, I think he did it for money. But if that was the case, why did Bruce Nickel die? His blood had been tested and had, in fact tested positive for the presence of cyanide. He had also been killed by this contaminated Excedrin. And so it's just like, what the fuck is going on? Was it right. Was it Paul? But if it was Paul, why did Bruce die? Right. And tips were coming in from all over the place. One pay-and-save clerk reported a sketchy man who had attempted to buy cyanide weeks before Snow's death. Another person suggested that Sue Snow had identified an embezzler during her work at the bank, and he had access to cyanide. But this is a stretch because it's like, how did this embezzler plant Excedrin on Sue Snow? On Sue Snow, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, yeah, that one seems like the long shot. Yeah. Investigators were able to determine that Snow and Nichols' bottles all came from the same source. The King County Medical medical examiner was also reevaluating nine other recent deaths to determine if cyanide was involved and of course there's sheer panic by consumers sure not only had extra strength etcetera been removed from store shelves but so had datril and bufferin they're just like no any anything just anything <laughs> get all of the capsules off the shelves immediately people are freaking the fuck out right now yeah. well i mean do you blame them? No, I absolutely don't blame okay. them. Okay, like, and, and I, I bet, like, because <laughs> I, I would probably be freaking out. <laughs> yeah, well, and I bet Tylenol's pre feeling pretty good because they changed their. They're like, yeah, it's not <laughs> well, just us. Well, because they changed, they don't have capsules anymore. They have caplets. They have the caplets that can't be taken apart. Mm. Remember? Mm, so mm -hmm. I bet they're like. Mm. Look at us doing so Look good. at us. We're on the cutting edge. Can't <laughs> can't fuck with our game now. Right. On June 24th, FBI agents were helping stores in Auburn go through their inventory to check for tainted lots of Excedrin when another bottle was brought to their attention. The day before, a bottle of maximum strength Anison 3 was found sitting on a can of peanuts two aisles away from where it should have been found in the store, which is like sure people take stuff and then they're like oh, i don't actually I don't want anison yeah but that brand wasn't even sold at that store oh well that's odd <laughs> further examination of this bottle found that it was from a completely different store entirely and so this bottle is super suspicious and they take it and test it and by the end of the day it was confirmed that some of these capsules had also been tainted with cyanide oh wow yeah 
So we've, we're we're transcending brands even at this point. Yes, yes. So now there's two victims that are unrelated, five total bottles of contaminated capsules, but they're all located in or near Auburn, Washington. Forensic analysis were done on everything on these bottles, the caps, the seals, the box itself, and the capsules. For the bottles that were still in their boxes, because these were the kind that, and I mean, we have these today where it's just a bottle inside of a box, Mm -hmm. you know? Sure. Yeah. They could tell that these boxes had been opened and then re-glued. And so there was a little bit of like tamper-proof stuff that had been fucked with. And the aluminum safety seal on the bottles was partially removed, as well as the polypropylene heat seal. And that's probably the biggest thing is that the polypropylene heat seal was obviously and that was all stuff with. that was added after the Chicago Tylenol murders. Yes, yes, exactly. All of the capsules, which were found to be tainted, all contained around 700 milligrams of cyanide, which is an absolutely insane and definitely fatal amount of cyanide. And it replaced all of the contents of the capsule, which was 250 milligrams of acetaminophen, 250 milligrams of aspirin, and 65 milligrams of caffeine. And so they just. So we're just talking just straight cyanide in this bitch. Straight cyanide, yeah. Okay. And this is another case where, like before, Tylenol created the caplets, where it was just a gelatin capsule that you can take apart, dump out, and then refill it and put together. In addition to the cyanide, though, analysts also saw some strange green specks, and they were Hmm. entirely unsure as to what this was. But they thought that if they could figure it out, they might be able to determine the source of the cyanide. Like, maybe this is a an impurity in a specific lot of cyanide, you know, for mm-hmm. jewelry purposes or something. And so if we can locate mm-hmm. that, we can figure out vendors and things like that. This, you know, it would have been essential, but it would have been easy to purchase cyanide in 1986. And so figuring out what vendor, what store, all of that, that helps them lower it down because once Literally. they lower it down it's still footwork after this like it's sure. still it's still calling they still got to track it down yeah they still got to do some walk in figure yeah. it out yeah so at this point paul webking was still the prime suspect even despite the fact that he doesn't seem to know bruce it's like well maybe you're just trying to kill people who knows we don't know why you decided to kill your wife and then poison other people but um You know, he hadn't been surprised to learn about the cyanide in Sue's death. He had a double indemnity life insurance policy on her. Mm, Because of course he did. (laughs) Right. The bottles had seemingly been moved from different stores, which would have been easier for Paul to do because he was a truck driver. And Mm. Sue died on, conveniently, garbage day pickup. So there was the very real possibility that evidence had been surreptitiously removed and was missing from the home oh yeah there's a lot of cards stacking up against good old paul here (laughs) so paul agrees to do a polygraph test he didn't originally want to do it but he was pressured by the fbi and i would agree with him not doing it because polygraphs aren't admissible in court and i don't think that anyone said you know should subject themselves to one because you can get false positives and false negatives and it's just, it's bullshit. There's you know? a reason why they're not admissible in court. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But Paul passed his test. And after that, people just weren't really sure what to do. They were like, well, he seems really suspicious. But this pseudoscience that we believe in says that he's 
innocence. So. Not. Dang it. What do we do now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Snow family discussed bringing a suit against the medical examiner's office for negligence, which their lawyers suggested against, saying... Yeah, that... what? <laughs> yeah. So, I think that they wanted to sue the medical examiner's office for not catching Bruce Nichols' death, because they were like, if you had caught his death, the recall would have been issued sooner. Uh... Right. But the lawyers gotcha. were like, it's... It's the company that makes excedrin that's at fault if anybody like it's not the medical examiners but it it is also weird that the contamination is like localized so the fbi thought it was a tampering case like in a Auburn, local tampering yeah rather than tampering at the at the well, employee yeah, because, level yeah because where did they say the plant was in north carolina or mm-hmm. something yeah like yeah how would north carolina be like okay let's get these five bottles to kent or to auburn washington right yeah like okay so the fbi chemists during all of this drama that's going on forever because it's not taking a couple hours like it does on like episode of csi or whatever it's taking forever so sure they finally and this is de- the 80s yes exactly that too so they, they finally determined what the green specks in the cyanide were. They were a mixture of monoron, simazine, and atrazine, which are all algicides. So, so meaning that they're chemicals that control algae in like fish tanks or something like that? Yes. Yes. Gotcha. And so now they had to physically go to aquarium suppliers and figure okay. out which algicide is this so that they could trace purchases of the specific algicide, and then cross-reference that with purchases of cyanide. So at this point, they're no longer thinking that it's a contaminant on the, the level of some sort of cyanide supplier. They think it's, they it's, think it's some, something separate altogether. Yeah, they think that it has something to do specifically with the perpetrator. Fortuitously, because again, this is the 80s, and <laughs> they're doing this on foot, they found the brand that had all three algicides in the proper amount. And it was called Algae Destroyer. According to the FBI, once they heard about the algicide being involved, they immediately mentioned that Stella Nickel had fish tanks in her home. Mm. Now, essentially, this was still nothing to go on. But they thought, why not? Paul Webking, he's, you know, with the polygraph had been pretty much cleared in their minds. But it's like, I don't know. He still looks suspicious as hell. If it's not the husband and the husband's dead, then it's the wife, right? So right. let's check out this Stella Nickel chick. And and also Sue Snow's exes, like, they had nothing to do with it. They took they'd been totally cleared. So out of the five bottles that were found, they also remembered that Stella Nickel happened to have two of them. Which mm, that's, that's that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's also like that's a statistic and probability. And they learned that Stella only stood to get thirty six thousand dollars in life insurance if Bruce died from natural causes, which was the original cause of death on his death certificate. But she could get one hundred thirty six thousand dollars if his death was found to be accidental say if he were accidentally uh, poisoned poisoned in a tampering some... case further investigation on this matter actually showed that there were two life insurance policies out on bruce that would pay stella so. that would give her over a hundred and seventy five 
1986 money in the event of an accident. The FBI. Stella, this isn't looking good for you. (laughs) (laughs) The FBI decided to focus their search of fish stores on the 57 that were near Stella Nichols' home, presenting a photo of her to the clerks and asking if they recognized her. And I suppose they could have tried to gain access to Stella's home directly, you know, maybe asking her for another interview or something, and then determined if she had the algae destroyer, but she might have switched brands or gotten rid of the tanks or might have thought that it would be unlikely to see algae side out. Like, you know, some people mm-hmm. put it like underneath the tank so they could go and not see it. They tried to do it. This Good old way. fashioned police work. Right. And they actually managed to learn something interesting. Like, I feel like when I was working with the public more, if somebody was like, have you seen this person? I would probably be like, maybe. I don't fucking know. (laughs) (laughs) But a guy at one of the pet stores recognized her and remembered selling her the algae destroyer tablets. Like, he remembers what she bought. (laughs) Way to go, Mr. Random Citizen. He told the FBI that he tells everyone who bought those tablets that they didn't dissolve well. And so he recommended to Stella that she grind up the tablets herself at home and then pour the powder into the tank. Mm, I see where this is going. Yes, yes. So they think she, she looks suspicious. They ask her now to do a polygraph. She agrees. And so she takes it in November of 1986 and she fails. Which, again, it might not mean anything, but, but for the still FBI. But good. Yeah. yeah. And Paul Webking, he still, he does not look good. He had already found a new love interest and was getting ready uh. to marry her around the new year. Oh, well, <laughs> things move fast when you find new love, I suppose. Yeah, so, I don't know. I would not put any weight in the polygraph tests, and I'd still be like, this Paul Webking guy looks like a fucking scumbag. I think he did it. But if you do believe them, then Stella Nickel looks guilty. Like, it's just, it's a fucking wash, I guess. The FBI doesn't think so. They believe in polygraphs. They now believe that Stella was the one behind the contamination. And this conviction of theirs was strengthened when they received a phone call telling them that, quote, Cindy knows her mom killed her dad. Cindy, of course, being Stella's daughter. So they decided they needed to interview the daughter. Well, yeah, I guess better late than never, Cindy, coming forward with this. Well, (laughs) it wasn't Cindy that came forward. It was somebody else who wanted to force Cindy to come forward. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they they get an audience with 27-year-old Cindy Hamilton, and she told FBI agents that Stella killed Bruce because she was bored with him, and she'd been having an affair for over a year with his friend. She also said that Stella knew how to get cyanide because she knew it was used in photography because her lover, Bruce's friend, had a dark room. Cindy also told them that Stella had previously tried to kill Bruce by putting some sort of seeds in Excedrin capsules, but they just made him sluggish. Both Stella and Cindy worked together at the airport, and Cindy recalled, One conversation during the drive to work where Stella said that the Tylenol cyanide murders would be easy to replicate because people would be looking for someone to take something from a store, not to put it back. Mm. But Not a good look. 
but Cindy hadn't actually seen Stella poison any capsules, hadn't seen her directly handle them, and hadn't been with Bruce when he died. So investigators had to believe the possibility that Cindy was only giving statements to the police for the reward money being offered by the product tampering fund set up by Bristol Myers, which manufactured Excedrin. It's okay. all circumstantial at this point, right? Sure, sure. But that's a that's a lot. That's a lot to take in <laughs> it is, from Little yeah. Miss Cindy. There's a lot of damning stuff there. I mean, but it also it's also one of those things where it seems too convenient. Yeah. Like it's almost too good. Yeah. Like yeah. too good of evidence. <laughs> like in March of nineteen eighty seven, Cindy's statement couldn't be written off as just an attempt at reward money. Not entirely. She testified to a grand jury that her mother had been plotting to kill Bruce for four years. She st- This was a long time. I know. Just get a divorce. <laughs> just get, yeah, like, Jesus. She started by asking about heroin and potentially obtaining some to cause him to OD. And then she started researching and trying out different toxic plants possibly what I think were foxgloves, before landing on cyanide, which she knew was easy to get because of its use in dark rooms, as we'd already established. But I just, like, what the fuck is your plan if you're going to make some guy who, as far as I know, was not on narcotics of any kind, you're going to make him OD on heroin? Like, that looks suspicious as hell. That looks super suspicious. Yeah. I mean, it obviously, I don't think she's thinking very logically at this point. She's just seeing the end and yeah. not, yeah, the end well, goal and not really thinking, like, what makes sense. You know what we always say, though, is that poisoners are fucking bumbling anytime that somebody tries yes, to poison somebody. It's true. Only bumblers true. poison somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Now, from the sounds of some of Cindy's testimony, it seemed like she was either guiding her mother or trying to put her off the idea of killing Bruce entirely. For instance, Stella mentioned that cocaine could easily kill somebody, but Cindy told her that they would be able to tell if he had only taken cocaine the one time that it killed him in an autopsy, which is not true, but it would still be suspicious if a guy who never used cocaine Right. All of a sudden was like, went on a bender and like overdosed on cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. She also seemed to encourage Stella's plans for buying a fish store with the life insurance money from killing Bruce. And Cindy was asked why she went along with talking about these plans, you know, even going so far as to say like, oh, I would help you at the fish store, whatever. And she said she was just glad to be on a different topic other than killing Bruce. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Like, shit's clearly not good in this. (laughs) Cindy believed that Stella had killed Bruce, but it would have been a lot to bring up to police and have investigated and would have ruined her relationship with her mother, which is clearly already kind of a dysfunctional mother-daughter relationship. Sure. Sure. If it turned out not to be true, if her mother was just like, I was just joking about killing Bruce and then you had the FBI investigate me. But then, Cindy says, that Sue Snow died, and Cindy knew if she had suspected anything, she needed to tell somebody. Who else was going to die as a result of this? Right. Further investigation based on Cindy's testimony led to the discovery of Stella's fingerprints and several books on poisons from local library. Fingerprinting, Mm. I will say, is also not great evidence, and it's not like what is depicted on TV. But whatever. 
The fingerprint evidence was admitted in another grand jury testimony in December of 1987, which handed down indictments for Stella Nichols' arrest. On December 9th, she was charged with two counts of causing death by tampering with a consumer product, along with three other accounts of product tampering not resulting in death. All of these charges were violations of the Federal Consumer Anti-Tampering Act, enacted after the Tylenol murders in Chicago just four years prior. From March to May of 1988, government prosecutors argued that Stella Nichol conspired with her daughter Cindy to plot killing Bruce in several ways, finally settling on poisoning the Excedrin that he took multiple large doses of every day. In order to get the largest payout, Bruce needed to die on accident, but it would be too obvious that it was a murder if only Bruce's Excedrin was poisoned. <sighs> she had to make it look like a tampering accident. And the best way to do that, the only way, really, to do that, was to create a tampering incident. Herself. She, oh yeah. my gosh. So she bought several bottles of Excedrin, removed the medicine from the capsules, poured the cyanide into the mortar and pestle she used to grind her algae destroyer for her fish tank, and then she replaced the Excedrin with cyanide. She re-glued the aluminum and the cardboard, replaced the bottles on the shelves at local stores, and then they were purchased, including by Sue Snow. Prosecutors believe she likely did this multiple times on at least two separate occasions for the Excedrin and the Anison, but also probably multiple occasions for the Excedrin, which they could tell because of the difference in the sizes of the cyanide crystals that had been ground. It wasn't mm. one batch that she had ground. On May 9th, 1988, Stella Modine Nickel was found guilty on all five counts. And on June 17th, she was sentenced to 90 years for causing the deaths of Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow. She would be eligible for parole after 30 years, at 74 years old in 2017. In 1990, Cindy Hamilton actually did receive $250,000 from the Non-Prescription Drug Manufacturers Association's award fund for providing evidence against her mother to solve the Excedrin murders. The other $50,000 was split between eight other people who helped convict Nickel, including the guy who worked at the fish store. Nice. Nice. And other family members and friends of Cindy. After the payout, Cindy Hamilton appeared to completely disappear. Surprise. Yeah. And there's like a whole lot more drama to this case. There's conspiracy. There's mother versus daughter, mother versus mother. Worries about, like, jury misconduct. All of this can be found in the book Bitter Almonds by Greg Olson, which can actually be found online in totality. So you can read it. Oh, okay. There's a lot of trauma there. Did she get parole back in 2017? In 2017, she did file, but she was denied. And then okay. in May of 2022, Stella filed for compassionate release from prison because of her failing health and her elderly age. She cited that she had been a model inmate and was has only incurred two minor infractions during her 34 years in prison, and the director of the Bureau of Prisons had determined that she was not a danger to the community. The petition was denied in June. The Bureau of Prisons could petition for Stella's release, or else, given credit for her good behavior, she will continue to sit in prison until she is eligible for release in 2040, when she will be 96 years old. Damn. Mm -hmm. 
It's so crazy to think that she might have gotten away with it if it hadn't have been for the algae tablets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the fact that they even were able to put that together and like track it down like that. That's I, wild to me. <laughs> I do love that bit about forensic chemistry. Like you can even take wine and determine like where it was grown because of forensics in the wine. Like that's all very that's crazy. cool. But like no, that's super cool. The the drama and the like how how could this have played out? How is this real life? And then the the forensics. Like it is good stuff. And it was made into TV. This is an episode of Forensic Files, actually. Oh really? Yes. I love Forensic Files. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely an episode of Forensic Files. Well, and the other thing too that I'm thinking of, like not only did Sue Snow tra well, I mean and also and also Bruce, but like Sadly, Sue Snow died, like, and I'm surprised more people didn't die, honestly. Yeah, for real. Like, yeah. and and was she just sitting there waiting this whole time, like, when is somebody else going to die so Basically. that I can bring up the fact that I think that this was how my husband died, too? Yeah. Because that's what she was waiting for. Like, what if it didn't make news? And what if the tamperings never came out? Like, what if they didn't find out that Snoo Snow died of cyanide poisoning? Like, yeah, how many people you know would have had to die? Yeah, like, how many people would have had to die? Or what if they were just all incompetent and it never got put together? They were just yeah. like, yeah, she got electrocuted. Like, yeah. what if the Diener never smelled the om the bitter almonds? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's a crazy one. Yeah, that's a crazy is. one. She's a she's a piece of work. But yeah, man, just get divorced. <laughs> if you if you if you were thinking about murdering your significant other, consider divorce. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to get money for being no. with them. It's not worth it. Stella didn't get the money, so no, she didn't get the money, and now she might be in prison until she's ninety six if she makes it that long. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Good, good advice. Just get a divorce. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.